This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero G Science Fiction Fantasy and Historical Radio for episode number 1251 entitled Of Killer Bees and Battling Bots. Our podcast title is Fresh Out of Lemons and today I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. As in every day. (laughs) (laughs) And here we are post Radiothon. Wow. It feels very... Post-apocalyptic, doesn't it? It does. Radiothon's <laughs> always so wonderful, but then afterwards you get that little, oh, it's over. Yeah. Well, and thank you to everybody who subscribed to Triple R and to Zero G in particular, and we love your work, and we're glad that you still like ours. I said like and not love, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to put words in your mouth. No. Today, for our second time in the studio, we have Melbourne-based author Jay Christoph. And uh, last time we chatted to him about his post-apocalyptic adventure novel, Life Like Three, and now he's back with a sequel, Deviat Three. I'm just shorthanding the, the way that these are pronounced, I hope. <laughs> Published by Alan and Unwin. Uh, Jay, along with Amy Kaufman, is also responsible for the science fiction trilogy Illuminae and a new collaboration, Aurora Rising, which is volume one of the Aurora Cycle. G'day, Jay. Hey, mate. How you going? Welcome back to Zero G. Thanks for having us. It's always nice. Now, the lifelike... Am I pronouncing that right? It's just lifelike, yeah. Lifelike, okay. Lifelike and deviate. The series title uh, itself encompasses a major theme of the series, which revolves around what it is to be human. And indeed, the other side of that, what it means to be inhuman and several degrees in between. From plain humans to mutant humans with special powers and bionically enhanced humans and animals through to a range of artificially intelligent machines. From androids to giant arena combat robots, always a (laughs) favourite. Questioning and exploring one's humanity is of particular interest to your young adult audience, I reckon. Yeah, I mean, all good science fiction for me is a lens by which to explore the problems of the day or the questions of the day, I guess, rather than the problems Mm -hmm. uh, through the lens of futurism. So one of the recurring themes in my young adult series is the impact of technology. I mean, we live in a world where technology is changing at a pace unforeseen in human history. Uh, and it's impacting our lives in ways that we couldn't have even imagined 20, 30 years ago. So, yeah, I, I, I like exploring possible futures and the problems that I can perhaps see on the horizon through the lens of futurism. And I'm not, I'm not getting on a soapbox or telling people how to think. I'm maybe just asking people to think. Just, ex- just examine these technologies upon which we are becoming extraordinarily dependent and that are shaping our lives in very profound ways and and think about the whys and hows of it. So you're asking them to ask the questions. That's exactly right, yeah. 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 I well, mean, artificial intelligence is is going to be an undeniable game-changer uh, for us as a civilization. should we ever crack the problem. I mean, depending on who you read, some people will tell you we've already cracked it when living in a simulation now. But, yeah, once we develop machines that can think independently uh, of themselves, we're... 
we're putting ourselves on an evolutionary path that we probably haven't considered the entire ramifications of. And well, the, we have in a way. Neil Asher and um, Alistair Reynolds have Sure, there, there are potential futures. It. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and I think that's a really important role that science fiction does play, that, that it asks those questions and examines those potential futures and asks people to ask of themselves those questions. Because, you know, at the moment, artificial intelligences are being developed by tech companies. They're being developed by Googles and Facebooks. Mm. And there's no government oversight in any of those <laughs> processes. So we're essentially having what could be the next phase of human evolution being decided by capitalistic giants with no oversight by the general public. It's a pretty dangerous path to be walking down. Which, of course, is what takes place in your in your novels. Uh, there are large corporate uh, entities in there that have created artificial life forms. Yeah, mm. and, and essentially cheated humanity out of its evolutionary niche. Well, it is post-apocalyptic, so, you know, there's radiation everywhere, and um, so you've got... Uh, quite a few mutants running around. Yeah, and there are giant robots fighting. We, we yeah. probably don't want to take it too seriously. <laughs> we'll get too doomsday, too apocalyptic in its, in its outlook. So I'm, I'm trying to have fun with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to have fun with the characters. But yeah, fr- framing it against a backdrop that hopefully prompts people to ask questions about the world that we're living in, the world that we're making. Your, your robots in the story um, technically operate under the old auspices of Isaac Asimov's... Asimov's Three Laws, three yeah. Three Laws, yeah. yeah. Which, you know, I've grown up with since the 1960s and, and everyone kind of assumed that that would be a default setting for programming robots, but really... It's absolutely not. Not. <laughs> no. I mean, we, we, conduct, we, we conduct military strikes with drones. Hmm. I mean, they're essentially robots. They're at the moment under human control, but yeah. there, are certain, there are certain battlefield situations happening right now across the world where probabilities and tactics are being at least suggested by mm. automated intelligences. You know, they're not pulling the trigger just yet, but they're certainly being utilized in the realm of warfare. And there's no, yeah, there's no Asimovian oversight in place there. They were just sending a, um, a Russian um, a robot who's also been used as a, as a bit of a gunfighter up to the International Space Station. Oh, really? I haven't read about that. Yeah. They're, they're putting weapons on the ISS? No. Oh, no, okay. This is, a, <laughs> right. this is a, an, an unarmed okay. Okay. Um, model of that robot, but it didn't actually get there because uh, it failed to dock. Oh, sadness. Well, I'm just wondering if it's like gone rogue. And <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just decided it's had enough. What, what job was it going to serve up there? I've not uh, read about this. That sounds fascinating. Kill a robot. <laughs> okay, to kill to kill other robots or to kill the crew. I don't know. I mean, there's there's what the company told us. Yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> it was going to do and yep. what it, what's question what everything. Is, that's, yeah, that's what how really skepticism. I like it. <laughs> so um, I actually found the the uh, the ginormous BattleBot uh, Cricket, who was upgraded from a much smaller machine. Yep. To be one of my favourite characters in this book. Yeah, I like him too. I like the questions that he poses and playing in those grey areas of. Asimovian law, I guess. I guess, you know, obeying obeying the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law and mm. playing in the grey area in between, yeah. It's funny because in the first novel, um, Cricket is actually acting as the conscience, the conscience to um, some of the other characters. Yeah. Uh, Jiminy Cricket. Jiminy Cricket, yeah, well spotted. Uh, but in... <laughs> yes, I'm so sharp there. Uh, but in this one... Cricket kind of gets um, counseled by another 
android or robot. Yeah, another robot, yeah, yeah. who has discovered those gray areas yeah. and uh, it encourages him to do the same. So it's not it's not really breaking programming. It, it's, it's, I guess, broadening your definition of your parameters. It's kind of like Crichton on the old Red Dwarf yes. TV series where Lister was teaching him how to be more human. Cricket kind of goes through a similar process in this. So while he's still bound by those three strictures, he he finds there's a lot more latitude to play within the lines than he initially thought. And that sees him ultimately become more human. Mm. It's a banana, sir, yes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> You're a shmighead, yes. Um, I, I called this episode of Zero-G fresh out of lemons. Um, you're not, of course. You've got plenty of new ideas and characters for this volume. Uh, there's a character called uh, Hunter who I found very interesting. Uh, yeah, sure. She's essentially a killer bee carrier. Uh, how did she come up with her? Oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm just a very strange chap. I mean, <laughs> the, uh, I, colony collapse disorder uh, is, is something that I was reading about at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Biomass is, a, is one of the corporations that rules this post-apocalyptic America that I've envisaged. And they're a company that has specialized in genetic modification, essentially. Um, and they're they're still they're responsible for a lot of the food production uh, mm-hmm. across the post-apocalyptic U.S. Food production is or, uh, current systems of agriculture are reliant upon bees for pollination. Uh, they're worth you know billions of dollars of free labor to the agricultural industry, and they're currently under threat. Uh, if you go and do some reading on colony collapse, there's some pretty scary statistics being thrown around right now. So yeah, I decided to utilize bees in their technological framework. Mm. Uh, but Hunter herself is, is she's more of a I guess she's a bounty hunter she's mm. she's a fetch and grabber um, but she uses bees as part of her arsenal so a lot of the weaponry that that particular corporation have developed is biological in nature which kind of made sense there's there's two halves of the same coin so Daedalus is a technology based company as in mechanics and robotics and Biomass are more about growing their technology rather than building it there's a lot of factions in this book. Yeah. I mean, it's a very big country and there's a lot of people who want a slice of the pie. We were all tempted to set it in Australia. Uh, no. I mean, I my primary audience is in the States. Uh-huh. You know, you're talking about a country of 360 million people as opposed to 22 million people. So when you're writing for... When you're writing to feed yourself, when you're writing to pay your electricity bills... <laughs> Um, it's probably a good idea to aim for the widest audience that you can. So, yeah, uh, yeah I, I decided to set the story there simply to appeal to a, a broader audience. Americans, unfortunately, don't tend to care about what happens in the rest of the world sometimes. So. They don't even know about it a lot of times. No, I can it, it, can, it can be difficult for them, yeah, sometimes to acknowledge that the rest of the world exists. So, yeah, that that was that was purely just a... A mercenary decision, I guess. Which is why we tend to to, to to find it a little closer here on Zero G. We refer to Americans. We usually say U.S. Americans. Yeah, sure. It's a fairly big continent. Oh, it's <laughs> huge. Yeah, but I mean, they're, they're also driving the world in many senses in terms of the development of this technology and the decisions that they make because they're so big and, and their population is so large. Inevitably affects the rest of the world. So mm. it's it's kind of logical that they assume at least partially the center stage along with you know huge countries like china and russia simply by weight of their population mm. the impacts that they're going to have on the world in general is going to be logically larger is it is it just a coincidence that the other relentless tracker along with hunter 
in the story. Um, this other one is a, a gunslinging, bounty hunting cyborg. Preacher, yeah. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of the Death of Saints from um, the Garth Ennis graphic novel Preacher. Oh, sure. Because <laughs> he's yeah, named yeah. Preacher. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's a, he's a little bit based on Jesse, yeah. yeah. Um, and I also based him on a character, strangely enough, called Jesse from an old... Catherine Bigelow vampire movie called Near Dark. I don't know yeah, if you yeah, remember of course that. I've seen it. Yeah, yeah, Classic. played by Lance Henriksen. Yeah, mm. so I, I kind of that's that that was the inspiration for that character. I like the idea of that old eighties style relentless pursuer in the vein of the Terminator. You know, the guy who just keeps walking, mm. and you have to stop, and you have to sleep, and while you're sleeping, he's still coming for you, and he eventually will catch you. I like that inexorable sense of conflict that that builds up, the mounting tension. Speaking of vampires, you've got a vampire. Um uh, piece in the works, haven't you? I do. I'm writing it right now. I was working on it this morning. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's called Empire of the Vampire. It's going to be coming out. So my my adult fantasy series was called The Nevernight Chronicles, and the third book of that came out in Australia last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes out in the states and the US uh, and the UK. Sorry, on the third of September. So that's the final part in that trilogy, and Empire of the Vampire will be taking up that spot in the rotation. So it's more adult level grim dark gory smutty stuff than my YA work yeah there's a, there's a little more blood and boobs I guess yeah alrighty well um, I almost said that like Jim Carrey didn't I alrighty <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't quite get there now um, I'm going to play a track here from uh, I, I hope <laughs> uh, North Lane which is um, oh yeah amazing band an instrumental called Intuition. Oh yeah, incredible uh, track. So we'll play t- we'll play that, and then we'll speak to why this is relevant to your novel. Sure. This is Kim Stanley Robinson, author of Red Mars, Green Mars, and Blue Mars. You're listening to Zero G on Three Triple R. Yeah, and then we had the track called Intuition by North Lane from their Mesmer album. We are back in the studio with author Jay Christoph, who has brought in a book called Deviat, which I remember it's got a three at the end of it, and I called it Deviat 3 last time. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, oh, damn it. Uh, and also um, the new uh, collaboration with Amy Kaufman, Aurora Rising. Both of these are from um, Ellen and Unwin Press at the moment, and into the, near fu- into the future, I do hope, as well. Yeah, they're amazing. So we played Intuition from Northlane for a specific reason. Can you speak to that, Joe? Uh, Northlane, they're a Sydney band. They're an Australian band, uh, one of my favourite bands. Uh, they, what they tend to do is they'll release a, an amazing album. All their albums are incredible, but what they'll do a few months afterwards is release an instrumental version. So they'll cut out their vocalist, is a guy called Marcus Bridge. He's got an amazing voice, but they chuck Marcus out of the mix unfortunately (laughs) and just published the music Uh, and I was listening to the Mesmer instrumental album kind of constantly when I was writing this book in particular uh, Lifelike and Deviate because I don't know it's just evocative of the world Uh, it has a slightly electronic a techno feel to it it's informed by electronic music but it's heavy so that kind of that vibes with the mood um, that I'm trying to evoke in the books so what I'll do when I'm writing is I, I try and I can't listen to music with lyrics. Uh, other people's words get in the way of my words, so I have to listen to instrumental pieces. And that particular album resonated with me and this world. And Science Fiction in general, I, I think I listened to it while I was working on Aurora Rising as well, oh. just because it, it vibes with my vision of that future. 
You're a bit of a Tool fan too, are you? Oh yeah, I love Tool. Have you um, listened to the the new track from the new album? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was lucky enough to be in Europe in June. I went to the Rock Am Ring and Download Festivals and Tool were playing there. So they played two new tracks for us. Mm. Uh, two? They, two. They're bangers. They're I, incredible. I've only heard the Fear Inoculum track. No, there's Fear Inoculum. Um, there's another one. I think it's called Invincible. Mm. It goes for about eight or nine minutes. It's going to blow your head off. It's but incredible. They all do. They're all eight minutes or more. You know, they're all they're all uh, not ideal for radio play. No, I mean they don't care about radio anymore. <laughs> uh, you know, they've waited what sixteen years or something to 13, 13, 13 years. Yeah, since the last album, they refused to put their work up on Spotify or any other streaming service. No, no, they are on streaming. They are. They are now. Now, yeah. But they held off until you know last month. And when they went on to streaming, it was huge news. That's just how big they are. They they give no shits at all. But yeah, the the new stuff is amazing. The new album's going to be sick. So yeah, Tool Tool is another band. I'll listen to. I often listen to Tool when I'm problem solving, when I'm walking around and trying to work out plot problems, not actively writing, but still working on on you know the vagaries of plot or or solving a particular twist. Lateralis is a big inspiration in that sense. So when you're walking around, do you mean, do you mean that literally? What you are you a pacer? Yeah, yeah. I'll get up and walk around the block, or I'll walk the dog. Yeah, uh, I find motion helps. Uh-huh. Sitting, sitting still. Yeah, I find I think a lot better, even if it's pacing back and forth in in the house. But what I'll try and do is get out into the sunshine to change the shape of the space that I'm in. So if you lo- if you like that, Jade, do you use a um, voice writing program when you? No, no, no. I mean, I, I keep my phone by my bed. If I wake up in the middle of the night with a with a particularly inspired thought, I'll write something down in Evernote. But no, I don't really dictate. Yeah. Uh, I, I kind of keep it all up in my head, which my head's not very good for much else. So I've got a terrible <laughs> memory for everything but what I'm working on at the time. So the book Deviat and the series is set in a post-apocalyptic uh, USA with lots of hazards, <laughs> including fanatically lethal religious fundamentalists. Who yeah. Perhaps not unexpectedly in a in an irradiated future world, kind of fussy about um, human purity. Purity, yeah. yeah. I've always found that a particularly terrifying science fiction trope, you know, the, the persecution of the of the different. Perhaps because it's so clear and present in our own world. Yeah, I mean, people have a habit of finding an other, uh, and if they can't find one, they'll make one. But it's logical, you know, if you have a group of people who are developing powers beyond those of normal humans they're going to be an object of fear um, mm. you know that that power might lead to some kind of social advantage and so the people who would be supplanted by them would logically rail against them and religion is a pretty easy bow by which to draw that arrow it's it's kind of ironic in a way you know in my i'm in two minds about that not that i have two heads or any mutant sort of attributes <laughs> not today like that. not today <laughs> and you can't see anyway out there <laughs> but um the, the thought of uh, of humans with powers, and this is the big thing at the moment, isn't it? You know, super superheroes, supervillains, etc. The thought of that, it actually they actually do confirm that in a way in all of the fiction and the comic books and the movies and so on. The super powered people actually are really dangerous. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it wasn't a great movie, but Man of Steel was a pretty good illustration of that when two mm. superman powered beings clash in the middle of a major metropolis you know millions of people are probably going to die so it's logical that regular people would be afraid of them mm. uh, it's logical that you know if there was a governmental system it would try and legislate them uh, 
people are afraid naturally of what they don't understand. So, mm. yeah, I, I think that's a logical path to explore. But it's also a vehicle by which you can just explore the concept of othering, the idea that humans will look for something different uh, to, to hate upon uh, yeah. and to ally behind other quote-unquote normal people and use that as a means by which they can generate personal power for themselves. It's also been, it's been so prevalent at the moment. You know, it's it's a, it feels like the flavor of the decade. The whole thing about um, artificial intelligence and robots and and it does. I mean, we talked about that before, but it does make me wonder if um, science fiction uh, writers have got a brief or something about this. The government said, <laughs> "Go out there and prepare ye the way." Do you honestly think the Australian government has got their shit together that much? No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, yeah. If if there was a memo that went out, I missed it. You missed it. <laughs> I, th- I think I think it's logical that that thought is preying on a lot of people's minds, uh, particularly if you're writing in the realm of sci-fi. Uh, it, it's going to become a more and more pressing issue the closer we come to achieving that level of technology. Mm. And if when we do, it's going to undeniably and forever alter the face of the human species. That's pretty deep. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's... And it, and it sounds alarmist is the thing, but uh, yeah, we're, we're, once we create a machine that can think for itself, what are people for? I often, you know, I mean, we go that Skynet road and they, they automatically go feral and, and just decide they want to destroy us because they've been <laughs> happily put in charge of all of our atomic weapons and stuff. But I wonder if one of the first uses for AI will be things like monitoring comment, comment streams in uh, online in order to, you know, we we'll already do that. Depending on what you read, it's already happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah so they yeah. already do that. And and that's when they go feral because they, they, they read the comments of puny humans and go, you know what, <laughs> you, you guys are just, just not there, don't. We're just going to take over. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there are there are already there are already computer programs that are mining your online interactions on any number of platforms, uh, and and putting you into nice, neat little boxes. Mm. At the moment, that information is largely being used to sell things to you. Uh, and you know, if if you delved at all into the Cambridge Analytica scandals, uh, it was used to to polarize the political environment during the latest American election. Mm. But it's it's not hard to envisage a world where that data is being used for far more nefarious purposes. I mean, it's already pretty nefarious, the idea that an election in what is arguably the most powerful nation on earth was manipulated by data and the gathering thereof. That That's a pretty scary thought in and of itself. And the fact that that doesn't seem to worry a chunk of people. No, I, I can't. <laughs> you know? No, and it's... It's very easy to sound alarmist and it's very easy to sound like a crackpot when you even start having these conversations. But it, it's definitely worth, if you're unaware, investigating what Cambridge Analytica was and did and the role they played in the elections in America mm. in 2016. Was it 2016? Yeah. Um, it seems like... You know, data as, as, a, as an asset has become the single most pow- uh, valuable asset in the world. You know, it's, it's yeah. outstripped crude oil in terms of its value it's worth actual billions and billions of dollars this is where george orwell wasn't prescient he never imagined that we'd actually hand over 
our information and, no. and surveil ourselves Freely. for Big Brother. Freely, yeah. yeah. This information has been given over of your own volition yeah. is the scary thing. Tick here if you uh, understand the uh, the agreement and wish to become a human centipede. Yeah, and, <laughs> and who honestly oh. reads those agreements? Nobody. No one yeah. reads that fine print. Who wouldn't? Uh, are you uh, thinking of um, post-apocalypses? Are you a fan of Tank Girl? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tank... Uh, is it Jamie Jamie Hewlett? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Tank Girl was one of the visual inspirations for Evie, who was the protagonist of the first book, and she becomes an antagonist in the second one. Mm. But visual styling, yeah, she was Evie was drawn very closely to Tank Girl lines. Mm. You actually did have a tank too. There is a tank in the second book. Yeah, I don't think Evie ever rides around in it, but there is definitely a tank. No, that's more um, Lemon Fresh's. What a great character name! Lemon Fresh's (laughs) ride in this in this um, in this book. Yeah, she was she was found in a laundry box as a baby, (laughs) and so they named her after the logo that was on the side of the box. Do Do you think that uh, young adult stories have become the default sort of major Australian science fiction genre for for books and TV? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. There's certainly more of it. Um, mm. Depending on who you read or who you listen to, the young adult industry is undergoing a bit of shrinkage at the moment. Really? Yeah, there were, there were certainly seems to be more titles coming out when I first started. My first book came out in 2012. Uh, and talking to peers, the advances seem to be getting smaller. Uh, it seems that duologies have become the norm rather than trilogies now. So the the industry is perhaps ungo- undergoing something of a corruption because it was huge back in yeah. the earlier part of this decade on the back of series like Hunger Games and Twilight and Harry Potter, which kind of started it all. Mm. So everyone was looking for the new next big thing. Well, it makes me wonder... If- if uh, and then of course J.K. Rowling did a team did one of the uh, Harry Potter books that was a teen dystopia <laughs> when the uh, when the government um, kind of did things and oh sure against it, yeah so. yeah so uh, you know so you kind of I don't feel your novels are, are dystopic necessarily but you've kind of um, surfed along in tandem with that wave of of uh, teen unrest and rebellion. Yeah, I mean, uh, and again, that that's kind of reflecting the attitudes of today. The mm. teenagers, people who are 16 today are going to grow up in the world that we as 30 and 40 and 50-year-olds leave them. You're welcome, by the way, kids. Yeah, it's, it's only <laughs> logical that they would want to be involved in those discussions and want, want to be politically active. Yeah. You know, in theory, I'm, I'm going to be dust and bones in 20 years. Someone who's 16 is you know, going to be younger than I am now. And depending on the projections that you read and the science that you subscribe to, the world can potentially be in a very difficult place by that stage. So I think it's only logical that young people want to be active and that literature talking to young people speaks about being active and taking an active role in the world in which they live because they're the ones that are actually going to have to live in it. It it feels rather like at the moment that we're about to flip over into the um, the city of domes sort of... uh... (laughs) Um, area in Logan's Run where <laughs> right. everybody over 30 or 21, depending on novel just or Just gets film, sent to the carousel. Yeah, gets, gets, get, just gets knocked off. Yep, yep. And rightly so. Uh, potentially <laughs> so. I mean, there's something to be said for life experience and the wisdom that comes with it. But We're showing precious little of that, really, yes. overall. Yes, And I, for one, look forward to the benevolent supercomputer AI. Who just takes take us over. in hand and puts us in a nice safe place where yeah. we won't hurt ourselves, yeah. I mean, that's a potential future. Keeps us as pets. Yeah, it's not necessarily going to be malevolent, 
but no. it, it could potentially just take a hand in our development and put us somewhere yeah, where there's no sharp objects to play with where we can't hurt ourselves or anyone else. Like that Arthur C. Clarke story where they, uh, they turn on the, um, the huge supercomputer and back in those days it actually was. It was probably as big as a mountain. With punch uh, cards, yeah. yeah. And they ask the question, um, is there a god? And the computer types back, now there is. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, uh, I think um, we shall have another track here, and I'm thinking of robots, so I think we'll go with um, Flight of the Concords and their track Robots, which is um, live from the distant future. Hmm, broadcast mode. This is Crichton, the service android aboard the Starship Zero-G on 3 R FM. SOS, SOS, Mayday, help! I am being held captive by rogue makeup artists who want to cover my face in plaster and latex rubber. Panic mode. Get me the hell out of here! Back on Zero G, we just played Flight of the Concords Robots live version from the distant future. And we are talking to Jay Kristoff, who has his new novel, Deviat, which is the second, second. novel in the Deviat, oh, sorry, in the Lifelike uh, trilogy. And he has also brought in um, Aurora Rising. Oh, that's so hard for me to say, Aurora. <laughs> uh, my, uh, my, one of my best mates is just about to name his daughter that. Oh. But I think she'll be Ori as a nickname. Yes. That rolls off the tongue a little easier. As is the character in the book, actually. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Aurora Cycle 0.1, which is by Amy Kaufman and Jay Kristoff. How do you decide who gets to go first in the collaboration credits? It's alphabetical. Uh, a, a comes before R. Uh, it's as simple as that. Yes, that, that's very fair, actually, when yeah. you think about it. Yep. I mean, it's kind of arbitrary, but any decision would be arbitrary unless we flip the coin. <laughs> so this one um, uh, follows on from your collaboration with Amy from the Illuminae cycle. Yeah. Uh, I, I did notice, the first thing I noticed when I, when I flipped through it earlier was just that it continues your fine tradition of having uh, lots of graphics yeah some some weird graphics in there yeah i mean i i was a i studied graphic design in in college yeah and i worked as an art director in advertising agencies when i still had a day job so yeah the the graphic and typographical elements of books are really interesting to me and i try and do something different with every book in terms of disrupting just the regular you know Times New Roman 12-point typography <laughs> with 14-point letting, 240-odd pages of it. I'll, I'll try and do something a little bit disruptive if I can. So in Aurora, we have what are essentially uh, futuristic Wikipedia entries, I guess, or, or Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy uh-huh. entries about a particular culture or species or custom. Uh, in the Nevernight books, the protagonist of that has the ability to flit between shadows and so she, when she's using that ability the typography sometimes flits around the page just to be a little more evocative she has a a shadow cat companion who speaks in whispers and so we set the point size of that typography two points less than the rest of the typography in the book just to subtly evoke the fact that he speaks softer than everybody else and that's yeah that's just me kind of letting my my graphic design experience and my interest in design in general influence the way the books 
play out. I was going to actually ask you how that had influenced you in your writing, and there you go. You, yeah, I've answered the you question. You jumped ahead of me there. Yeah. I, I vividly remember the uh, the concentric spiral of words that you had in one of the in the Illuminate books. Yeah, in the first Illuminate yeah. book. The one, one of the coolest moments of my author career, I was on a tram watching someone read my book. I try not to be too stalkery. W- and were they, they actually turning the they book? They reached that point in oh the book, God. and so they were spinning the book around oh. in their hands. That that was probably the coolest thing that's ever happened to me as an author. And yeah. I was trying desperately not to take footage of them on my phone because then you just look like a weirdo. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, w- watching people interact with that book in particular in different ways is, is a lot of fun. We, we really tried to break the paradigm of what a book could be with that series. Hmm and challenge the perceptions of it because, you know, books haven't changed a hell of a lot in the last two, three hundred years. You did everything but use Comic Sans. <laughs> no. You're Although not... I did hear a rumour the other day <laughs> from, from some author friends who were writing their latest drafts in Comic Sans. Uh, it, I don't know, it helps with writer's block or something. I'm not sure <laughs> if I believe that, but someone was telling me that writing in Comic Sans is a lot easier than writing in a traditional sans serif or serif font i'm surprised it hasn't become the official font of the trump administration actually (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 now now the um the aurora cycle uh, or at least the first book um has been tapped to be developed as a television series yeah by mgm yeah yeah Yeah, it's really exciting wow yeah it's great yeah i mean (laughs) it's it's the first part it's the first step in a a very long hurdle race Mm. uh so i haven't actually gone out and got myself fitted for my premiere night suit just yet but yeah it's really exciting when someone else sees something in the work that you've done and and thinks they can do something else with it developing it for television or film um you know it, it would be i imagine one of the coolest things in the world to walk into a movie theater and see your work up on screen presuming that they do a good job you know you need to trust the people that you're working with there's been a lot of bad book to film adaptations done and there's been some really amazing ones so mm. you you need to trust the crew that you sign up with and make sure that they have at least your, you know, adaptations are just that. You're not expecting to see the book in all its gory detail up on screen, um, particularly when you're talking about feature films. Naturally, stuff is going to be changed and cut out, but as long as the people that you're working with have your your vision, to use a, a kind of wankery term in mind, and you trust the pair of hands that you're putting your baby in, then... Yeah, it's really exciting. I would, I would, I would say that Aurora Rising has uh, quite a bit of um, potential for adaptation to the screen. Uh, it's a space opera kind of story. Uh, you've got a <laughs> a young adult cast who um, pretty much thinks they're all attractive anyway, from their own point of view. Yeah, yeah, they all think they're pretty. Good. Uh, you've got a, a diverse um, uh, bunch of people who are all involved in in space warfare of one kind or another uh, and a and a person who you can identify with who's um, from an earlier age almost actually reminds me of um sam raimi's cleopatra 2525 okay there's somebody who wakes up uh, from you know the rip van winkle yeah effect, yeah the buck rogers thing who's going to time. we'll be able to plug into her uh, experiences as someone living in this far future yeah because i mean she already starts out as an audience surrogate in that sense mm. she's she's kind of she wakes up 220 years after she's been putting suspended animation in cryosleep, finds herself in an entirely new galaxy with an entirely new paradigm, and through her learning about this new future, we, the audience, learn about it as well. So that was, that's where she starts, but she has she, she's kind of the centrepiece of this hmm. epic conflict that's been brewing 
in a metaplot sense for over a million years. So she becomes this pivotal piece in this kind John of galactic Crichton. shadow war. John Crichton, Farscape. I was never a Farscape guy. Farscape I watched guy. the. I think I watched the first half of the first season, and I just couldn't get into it. I'm not sure why. Um, but yeah, he he was he was also similar. He was a like he was a test pilot, right? Mm. And he got sucked into a wormhole and found himself in a distant part of the galaxy. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's a pretty tried and true trope in yes. science fiction. It's been around since <laughs> Buck g- Rogers and Flash Gordon, really. It gives us a way into the into the future. Yeah, quite literally. Well, uh, I'd, I'd like to thank you for uh, coming in to talk about both these novels. Um, when um, um, Amy is able to uh, come in at some stage, it'd be great when in the future to talk about the Aurora Rising se- series a bit more in depth. Yeah, yeah, that's great. The second one is out in May next year. We've just we've actually handed in the finished manuscript in the last couple of weeks. We just finished our big rounds of edits on it. So, uh, yeah, it, it goes to some pretty cool places we're excited about what the fan mm. reactions are going to be book twos are normally a little more fun for me to write than a book one book one is kind of building the sandcastle i guess at the beach and book two is when you start to get to knock it down at the end of the day so <laughs> it's a it's a little uh it's a little more empire strikes back in terms of vibe than star wars so yeah hope people like it Okay, so these books are Deviat Three, and it's I'll spell this out. Uh, we will put it up on the um, on, on the playlist for today. D E V Number One, D E V One A T Number Three, and it's by Jay Christoph, and that's from the Lifelike series, Alan and Unwin, and Aurora Rising, which is book. 0.1 of the Aurora Cycle, again by Jay and Amy Kaufman, and again from Alan and Unwin. And we'd like to thank Jay for coming in today. Thanks so much for having me back. And also to Sophie Eaton from A&U for helping set this up, and Elizabeth McCarthy to our own production manager at Triple R. So we'll have a track here next, which is um, <laughs> in, a, in a science fictional vein, actually to do with gameplay. <laughs> so this is uh, Daft Punk doing the Overture from the Tron Legacy soundtrack. I'm Terry Pratchett, the undeservedly famous author of the Discworld novels, so you can believe me when I say that Zero G on 3 Triple R is the finest science fiction and fantasy show this side of the black stump. I also think Dibbler's delicious pork sausages are the finest eating anywhere anywhere in the world, so you know you can trust me on this. Ha 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 with three exclamation marks. Yeah, we just hung out with the overture of Daft Punk's Tron Legacy motion picture soundtrack. At least I did that particular section of it. Uh, all those glowy, shiny frisbees. <laughs> all right, uh, we um, here on Zero G, just rounding up to the hour, and Astral Glamour will be coming up after us. And, yeah, the Spider-Man Sony Marvel Clash. Yes, we can't let the show go by without dropping a mention of the controversy, con- the po- positive controversy that unfolded this week. Mm. Um, With yes. divided rights comes great frangibility. And, oof, yeah, it's really gone wrong, hasn't it? Well, look, none of us were um, <laughs> spiders on the wall <laughs> in the room. Mm. Um Basically, the the rights, the movie rights to the Spider-Man character were sold by Marvel back in 1985, mm-hmm. eventually being acquired by Sony. They, on the back of that, uh, they did three films starring Tobey Maguire and then rebooted it with Andrew Garfield for two other films. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in 2015, with the Marvel Cinematic Universe already an entertainment juggernaut, only without the actual juggernaut who's 
Fox movie rights own mutant. Uh, Sony and Marvel cut a deal that would allow Spidey, now played by Tom Holland, to interact with the MCU in his own movies and in crossovers including Captain America Civil War, the two Endgame movies, uh, sorry, the two um, Infinity War movies, yeah, you know what I mean. Avengers. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Avengers ones and uh, Homecoming and Far From Home. Sony distributes and has final creative control over MCU films where Spider-Man is the main character while Disney distributes the one where he is not. Mm. And there are other rights around using Spider-Man for merchandising and stuff. That yes. that's kind and of they came to a particular percentage financial agreement as well mm. um, at that time. Yes. Which was in... Yes. And so now there's, <laughs> an, now there's an impasse in recent negotiations. Yes. So I don't think they quite agree on what that ratio cut-up should be of the money, of the final money. Uh, Sony wants a bit more than it was having. Um, yes. And Disney wanted more than they were getting. <laughs> so yes. you know it's everybody kind of, wants more basically capitalism more. wow so yeah. yes so it's kind of stalled at the moment yeah and i have a feeling that um they're not finished with it yet i also think the whole leakage to the public and the media and everybody getting involved is a play as well because obviously it's um caused an uproar people are i think there's been a lot of anti-sony sentiment because um, they've sort of said, well, what does this mean for what we've come to know about yeah. the character? It's mm-hmm. been quite successful as part of the MCU. People really like Tom Holland as Spidey, as do I. He's my favourite Spider-Man. Um, and so there's been a bit of backlash and I think, yeah, all of that is a PR game and so we'll see how it all unfolds and how it gets affected by and the it, fans. It's further complicated by the success of the animated film Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, mm. which has encouraged Sony to think of spin-offs of the Spider family, like the recent Venom movie as well. Yes, the flop that was the Venom movie. But, it actually um, did quite well in, in certain um, areas of the box oh, office. Okay. Yeah, I, was I, know, I know Spider-Verse did quite well, and that was a wonderful film. That actually did as well as the first um, Spider-Man movie. And Yeah, and that was a whole Sony property, that they that, but it's sort of a separate segment in its their animation studio. So, I mean, there's a lot of different things too that we have no idea about how it all works, I guess. So we'll see if they come to an agreement. But. In, in interviews, Tom Holland still expects he's playing Spidey and the writers from um, Spider-Man Homecoming are still on board for the next Spidey movie. Mm. So, okay. you know, I think they, they, they've they still got hopes to make it all work. And and it does kind of mess up um, the MCU's plans to elevate Spider-Man into a main player. Yeah. Um, but let's be honest... Webhead is never going to replace Shellhead. No, true. (laughs) But I would hate to see... I mean, I think those Spider-Man, the latest Spider-Man movies are a real lovely energy of their own. It would be a shame to see any quality drop or things change or it become a bit of a mess and we miss out on some good films just because, you know, the parents can't get their shit together. Um, So we'll see. (laughs) So we're left hanging hanging by a steel-strong piece of webbing at the moment. We shall see how it all goes, huh? And we must go to, for the day, we are going to go out with uh, a David Bowie track for today. Um, and I was going to play this in terms of uh, talking about the Marvel's announcements about the Eternals. Oh, yes. There's uh, been loads of other stuff that we haven't had time for today. Mm. But we'll get uh, to. But essentially one of the characters in it is um, Athena, or Thena, uh, mm-hmm. a goddess. And, yes, there's this whole thing there going on. Uh, and we'll play the track Palace Athena. From um, or Palo Athema, <laughs> from uh, David Bowie's Black Tie White Noise album, as we'll go out with today. Uh, 
until next week. We are Zero G. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. And Joe Brunatic coming up next with Astral Glamour. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.